Chuck Colson was a razor-sharp attorney a few decades ago, worked in the Nixon White House from 69 to 73. Uh, He was notorious in his days there as being a ruthless individual. There were some funny stories about he'd be willing to throw his grandmother under the truck to get Nixon reelected or something like that. That was a quote taken out of context, but sharp, smart guy and ruthless. And for President Nixon, his role was to keep Nixon connected with his constituents, his support groups. And when the reelection cycle was coming around, um, Colson was one of those guys who, who got caught up in what was called the Watergate scandal. If you're my age or even close, you probably remember this. This took uh, President Nixon down. But Colson got caught up in that with several others and was uh, indicted. He'd left the Nixon White House. Guys, this is going to be interesting here. So whether it's birds inside or out, uh, you'll have to work at uh, paying attention this morning. You can do it, I'm sure. Um, Colson had left uh, the Nixon White House, had started a private practice when he was indicted on charges, among other things, of obstruction of justice. And in this process in which he knew he's going to be tried and was facing prison, a friend of his gave him C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Mere Christianity. And Colson read that book and told other people he had become a Christian. Now, you can imagine from the outside, here's this sharp guy, this this hammer, this political hammer, who everyone assumes has done these dirty deeds. He he does end up at the end of the day, he he, um, pleaded guilty to a charge of obstruction of justice because he had sort of tried to defame a guy, he had said, so that his words wouldn't be taken seriously as all this investigation was going on. So you can imagine he's indicted, he's sort of fallen from the halls of power, and now he tells people, oh, now I'm a Christian. And you can imagine short-term the thoughts on this very, very convenient timing. You're a Christian now. Now you're a good guy. You were a bad guy. You're facing uh, prosecution. Now you're a good guy. Uh, He pled guilty on charges that his attorneys told him he'd probably skate on, but he pled guilty anyway. He did go to prison for several months, served, I think it was seven months of a one- to three-year sentence. But, you know, the question, the real question of the day was, is this just a scam Or did Colson really change? Was there a real change there or not? And while in prison, even for that short time, Colson came out wanting to do something for the conditions of prisoners in in our prison system and founded Prison Fellowship, which goes strong to this day. Among other things, they take care of the families of folks incarcerated over the holiday seasons. But there was this huge question, is this a conversion of convenience? Is this change, is it more than skin deep? And to Colson's credit, you know, to this day, he's considered one of the most influential evangelical Christians in the United States and also a spokesman for evangelical Christianity around the world. And, you know, the answer to the question was, yeah, it's more than skin deep. And it's because Chuck Colson became someone and something that he had not been before. He really had been a razor-tongued attorney who was ruthless and relentless in his political agendas. And yet he becomes the spokesman for prisoners, 
folks he didn't have to stand up for or try and do anything about. And he's become a proponent, his name's attached to all kinds of things, movements within evangelical Christianity to promote Christ's cause in our culture. This has been going on for the last three, three and a half decades. Chuck Colson became something he was not before. He became, in Paul's terms, a new creation. And that radical transformation was confirmed as time went on and his days went on and people said, this guy is not the same person that we knew before. He had become someone and something in conversion that he had not been before. And that's the theme we're looking at this morning in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 12 through 17. Paul talks about Christians being new creations. That we've become something and someone in our conversion that we were not before. And this is a really, really important truth. We'll look at a few points in this this morning. I'll try and keep myself brief, briefer than normal. Uh, but we will cover a few points here this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, 12 through 17. If you don't have a study sheet, this is from the New American Standard Version. Paul's continuing his conversation about new covenant life and issues. And he says, We are not again commending ourselves to you, but we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. This probably refers, people thought Paul was wacky. So he says, if we look like we're outside of our mind, that's okay, that's for God. If we appear to be of sound mind, it is for you. When we talk, appear to talk rationally to the point, that's for your sake. For the love of Christ controls us. This is all because the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one, Jesus, died for all, therefore we all died. He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you look in verses 12 and 13, the first point I want to look at this morning has to do with pride in appearance. Paul says there, for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. We've talked about this several times in the past. We will reiterate it here this morning. Paul was being compared by the Corinthians to church leaders who'd come in after he had started this church. And in this comparison, he does not stack up favorably. We know Paul says he's not a great orator. When he spoke, it, it probably didn't sound great. He might have had a Winston Churchill type uh, voice. Physically, his presence was unimpressive. And these other guys that had come into Corinth, they were impressive. They spoke better. They looked better. They might have come from better social standing than Paul may have assumed to have been. But Paul did not stack up well in this comparison. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 7, later he'll say the same thing. You guys are looking at things as they are outwardly. You're looking at my exterior and you're judging me deficient. And therein lies the problem. Paul says you're looking at just the exterior and the exterior is not the point. It's the heart that matters and that's your problem. The Corinthians were making the same mistake Israel did a thousand years or so earlier. Do you remember in Israel's history, they were officially a theocracy? 
God said, I'm your ruler in the Exodus. God ruled the nation. But as the nation went into the land, they said, you know, Lord, we've been here for a while. We notice everybody else has a king, a man on a throne. And we think that looks like a better idea than what we've got going here. We want a king. God tells them this is not in your best interest. This is not a good idea, but I'm going to capitulate. I'll honor your request. And so Israel's first king is King Saul. In 1 Samuel 9 verse 2, the son of Kish, speaking of Kish's son, he said, He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice, handsome man. There was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up he was taller than any of the people. So God has Samuel, the prophet, go and anoint Israel's first king, Saul. And you can imagine, Saul is this strapping, good-looking guy. He's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. And you know, the nation looks at Saul and they say, now that's what I'm talking about. There's a king. Well, just look at him. Look on the outside. This guy's a great king. He's our kind of guy. This is what we want. Amen. You know, the trouble with Saul, he's not a good king, is he? Because his heart is not right with God. And you know Saul can't get it right coming or going. When you read his sorry, pathetic story, and it really is that, it's a tragic life. And it ends badly with him taking his own life. It's a terrible life because Saul's heart doesn't belong to God. Inside, where people can't see, Saul was not the kind of man who could lead God's nation. And that comes out. But you couldn't see that looking at Saul from the outside. It's from the inside that it would matter if Saul was going to be a great king or not. Now, when you read this story, you look at Israel as a nation, you say, well, you know, um, they were just a a low-minded law. They didn't get it. But, you know, this wasn't true just of the nation. This was true of the nation's prophet also. So a little further in Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7. God says to Samuel, I'm sorry, I've changed my mind about making Saul king. I'm going to replace him. I'm going to put a guy in this slot who's after my own heart. A guy who's like me, who values what I value. And so Samuel, you go down to the house of Jesse, and one of his sons is my choice for king. This is amazing. We're in here with the air conditioner. Gal still got it going. Not cool enough. I thought we were done with that for the summer. Now, if you're all the same age as my wife, I know what's going on here. Yeah. Ladies, don't stop. Sorry, yeah. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. So Sam's going to go and he's going to choose, he's going to anoint the next king. So he goes to Jesse's house and Eliab, the first son, walks in. And what's Sam think? I suspect this guy looked like Saul. Here's another. It doesn't say specifically. Here's probably another big, strapping, strong, good-looking guy. And Samuel says to himself, surely this is the one. Because he's doing the same thing the nation did. He's looking at the outside. And he says, from the outside, man, this looks like a kingly guy. And so God says this to Samuel. Don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, Because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You know, and later all the sons go by and Samuel says, Lord, where's your chosen? And it's this youngish, maybe smallish, redheaded guy that's out keeping the sheep. Jesse wasn't even going to bring him forward. 
David. But God says of David, this is my man. He's not as tall as his brother, not as strong as his brother. Maybe not as articulate, we don't know. But God says, this is my man. Why? Because his heart is after me. You couldn't see that on the outside. That was only on the inside. That was in the heart. And that's what God was looking at. Now, you know, you fast forward from the first king a thousand years. How did Israel mistake Jesus, how did they not know Jesus was their Messiah? Because, you know, there was all kinds of scripture to say, this is what the Messiah will do. And Jesus, when John the Baptist sends his guys and says, are you really the one? Was I mistaken? Are you really the guy we've waited for? And Jesus quotes Isaiah 35. Well, go and tell him this, the blind see, the lame walk, the poor have good news preached to them. I'm your guy. So how does the nation not see that Jesus is the Messiah? There's, there's other dynamics, certainly, than what I'm saying here now. But, you know, one of them was, he wasn't impressive. Was he? Physically, Jesus was unimpressive. If he walked into our group this morning, we would not be drawn to him. Physically, unimpressive. Isaiah 53, 2, speaking of Jesus, before he got there, says, He, the Messiah, would grow up before God, him, like a tender shoot, a small thing, like David, not this great st- stature. He would be like a a root out of parched ground, something that looked like it had struggled for life. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. So that's the Messiah. And the nation looks at Jesus and he doesn't look like Saul. And he doesn't look like Eliab. They look at the outside and they say, surely not. He doesn't fit our thought of what Messiah will look like when he comes to Israel. So this can't be the guy. No physical appearance that would draw them out. And that same thing was going on in Paul's day. When you read through 2 Corinthians, you cannot be struck. Paul's lining himself up to look just like Jesus through the whole epistle. He's a suffering servant just like Jesus. That's the point. And to a group that looks at the outside and says, this appearance reflects God's kind of success, Paul says, no, God's kind of success, ultimately Jesus the Messiah, he was the suffering servant. He was rejected every place he went. And I'm just like him. Jesus was persecuted, I'm persecuted. Jesus was beaten, I'm beaten. Jesus was rejected by those he came to serve, I'm rejected by those I came to serve. It's the same thing through the whole epistle. Why do the Corinthians not value Paul? Because they're looking at the exterior and they say he doesn't measure up to our version of what success looks like. Same thing going on. Exactly the same thing. Looking at the outward appearance. Now, this thing cuts two ways. In Paul's time, they reject Paul because he doesn't look like they think an uber apostle should look. Paul, you say you're the super apostle, uber apostle. You don't look the part. But if Paul doesn't look the part and they're judging by the outside, what would that also mean? Just flip that over. That means if someone else comes along and their heart may not be there, but they look the part, the Corinthians would accept them, right? And of course, that's exactly what happened. So later on in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about those guys that the Corinthians love to compare him to. And he says, those men are false apostles. They are deceitful workers. They're tricky. You can't trust them. 
They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. They put on a false appearance to make the outside look the way the Corinthians thought they should. He says, no wonder Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It's no surprise if his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness also. So if the Corinthians get Paul wrong, the flip side becomes true too. He doesn't look the part, he can't be our man. They look the part, they must be the super apostles they claim to be. And so they're willing to bring in what Paul says, these are Satan's guys in the midst of the church being accepted as leaders because of their outward appearance. They're just like King Saul. They reject Paul. He doesn't look the part. They embrace false apostles because on the outside, they look the part. This was their mistake. We still make the same mistake today all the time. We judge by outward appearances. And Paul says when we do that, we miss it. We can miss it coming and going. We miss the people God's affirming. We embrace those who are substitutes, who are deceivers. And it's because of the appearance. We need to be really, really careful about making judgments based on appearance. You know, in James 1 or 2, I can't remember now, uh, James says, if a wealthy man comes into your church and you treat treat him well, based on outward appearance, and a poor guy comes into your church and you treat him badly, based on outward appearance, he says you're evil because you're making judgments based on an evil motive. But that's our tendency It's to judge by outward appearances. That's something you've got to fight all your life. God looks on the heart, and that's really what we should be saying as well. Here's an outward appearance. We take that. We hold it lightly. But what's the reality? You know, Chuck Colson proved over time he was the real deal. That was validated. Whatever his claim sounded like initially, the reality of the new creation status, it was validated over time. Couldn't fake that. The second point, and we won't mention, stay on this point long, verses 14 and 15, because we dealt with this primarily last time at verse 9. But Paul talks about a new way of living life. He says, we've concluded this, one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all, so that they, wouldn't, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. In verse 9, Paul says... Um, my ambition, the motive of my life, is to please Christ. Last week we looked at that. Part of that motivation was knowing that one day he would stand before Jesus at the Bema seat, the judgment seat, and Jesus would weigh his life. It was as if he'd put a fire to it. This is similar, but a little different. Paul says, Jesus died for you to free you from self-centered living so that your perspective would no longer be set only on ourselves, but our vision and our motive would be lifted up to Christ himself. You know, the smallest people in the world are the ones whose motive rises no higher than their own life, right? Their vision's too small because their eyes are too low because it's just about me. If my vision is no longer than me, in the grand scheme of things, it's a shallow, short-lived vision. If I have aspirations to be Napoleon and rule the world, I may be remembered briefly in the history books, but in eternity, what will the significance of that be? You know, non-existent. But you can take a person who's not known to the world, who invests for Christ, 
who takes this seriously and says, I understand I was redeemed for a purpose and that now I'm going to turn my life over and live for a greater cause for the person who died and saved me. Well, that raises my motive from the earthly to the sublime. Because my eyes, I'm not like a worm crawling through the ground. Everything's dark. It's all about me. My eyes are on heaven. My eyes are on Christ. And I am freed to live an entirely different kind of life. You know, when we as sinners sin, it's because that's all sinners can do. But the redeemed, we get to lift our eyes from earth to heaven. And in doing that, we're freed because we are elevated to a new life and to a new level of living. We're not consigned to some small life based on our own selfishness and our own limitations. We get to be something bigger and better than we were before. To live for Christ is not a small life. It's an enlarged life. It's life as big as it can get. Both here, because we're freed from ourselves, but also in eternity. To live well for Christ now means this enlarged capacity we assume in eternity to appreciate Christ. And it means Christ's ability to reward us in his name, in his cause, whatever that looks like in eternity. That goes on and on and on. That's a vision large enough to impel us through life. That we no longer live for ourselves, we live for the one who died for us, rose again on our behalf. That'll take you down the road. You can build your life on these verses. And on verse 9, our ambition is to please Christ. That's the same thought here this morning. Last point, verses 16 and 17. This new creation status is a big deal. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, things have come new. All things are made new. Um, Our past is not our future. I know chronologically that would be an impossibility. But our past does not determine our future. What we were and who we were in our past does not dictate who we are in the future and what we are in the future. Our past is not, as Christians, our future. I'll go over some verses. I think some of these are on your study sheet. Um, there are in the scriptures the, these verses that are, talk about identity, who you are in Christ. And for whatever reason, these are truths that most of us as Christians never really lay hold of. <clears throat> That's a shame because these are sort of life-transforming verses. The concept is transforming. Most of us as Christians live a life something like this. We have some kind of problems in our life. Man, we know we're not what we should be. Um, we feel some need, some sense of need. And we hear about Christ and, and God's at work in us and we believe the gospel, we trust Christ. And our thinking goes something like this. Jesus has died for my sins and now I live life the best I'm able to and at the end of the day I get to heaven. And it'll be sort of slipshod along the way probably, but my sins are forgiven and, and that's a good thing. And that is a good thing. But it's just not near enough. And the knowledge restricted to Jesus died for my sins, this will not change the way you live generally. Because you run into a problem. So this, this issue of transformation is a huge deal in the New Testament, especially in the Pauline writings. And it gets down to this. 
Jesus didn't just die for my sins. I died with Christ. And that's the solution to the problem I have with my old sinful nature. Paul says here, you're a new creature. You're a new creation. And if Paul says that to you and I today, we might look around and and say, who are you talking to? Jesus died for my sins. I get that. I'm going to heaven. But what do you mean I'm a new creation? It feels like the old me, pretty much. So listen to just a couple passages Paul deals with this topic on. Romans 6, 2 through 4, Paul there says, All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. We've been buried with him through baptism, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus died for you, that's good. You died with Christ, that's liberty. Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul there says, Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? Because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You've died past tense. You died with Christ when he was crucified on the cross. You know, in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, we are considered guilty, you and I, everyone in this room. We are considered guilty by birth, at birth, for Adam's sin in the garden. And that sounds totally unfair, doesn't it? If you're Roman Catholic, you know it's the doctrine of original sin. But the thinking goes like this. This is the way it's stated in Hebrews. We were in, and in Romans, we were in Adam when he sinned because we're his heirs. Your DNA was in Adam, and so was mine, and so was every human being that's ever lived. We're the descendants of Adam. We were in Adam when he sinned. Adam was a sinner, therefore his descendants are sinners. Can't be any other way. Has to be that way. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, Jesus became our new life. And our old life and our old sinful nature, its history ended with Christ on the cross. So when Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead, that's your genesis. That's the beginning of God's new creation. And that's the end of your old sinful life, and that's the end of my old sinful life as far as God's concerned. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he was the first of all the spiritual children he would bear thereafter. So Jesus died for my sins. That's forgiveness of sins. That's a good thing. I died with Christ. That's new creation. I died with Christ. I rose with Christ. That's the origin of my new creation status. That's where your spiritual life and mine started. It's at the cross and the resurrection. And that's how we become new creations. This is really important stuff. And I know for most of us it goes right over our head. But this is the difference between living joyfully, victoriously, or just feeling like we're on the never-ending treadmill of I'm doing the same sins over and over and over and over again. Paul says this in Colossians 1. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. You had this history. That was you then. But now something else is entirely true of you. 
That was then. That's who you were. That's what you were. But now there's something entirely different, and that is your new creation status. You are a new creature. You are someone and something that did not exist before your conversion. That's true of every person who's trusted Christ. We are someone and something that we were not before. Galatians 6.15, last point along this line. Paul says there, Neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what matters, he says. Are you a new creation? If you've trusted Christ, you are. The old things have passed away. All things are new. You are right now part of the new creation that's not yet fully come. Now, it's hard to hold on to this truth because we look at our life. And most of us live, to one degree or another, the Romans 7 kind of life. And Paul describes that. And he says it goes like this. Now that I'm a Christian, I know what God wants for me. And the trouble is this. I don't do what I know I should do, on one hand. And I do the things I know God doesn't want me to do, on the other hand. And so when we do this over and over again, we're sort of faced with a quandary. Okay, Lord, am I really saved? Because if I'm really saved, why do I keep sinning? It's a quandary. How do we resolve the conflict? Lord, if I'm really a Christian, why don't I live up to that calling? Why don't I live like a new creation? And so we scratch our head. Was it my conversion? Was it, was it false? Am I not a Christian? Or Lord, is there just something here I don't get? What's the deal? Now I don't want to sin. Guys, the upside when you go through this conflict, Christians have this dilemma. But non-Christians don't. Do you get that point? Christians have the dilemma. Non-Christians don't. If you're not saved, you don't have a new nature that's in conflict with your old sinful desires. It's all the old. That's all you have. For a Christian, there's a new creation life inside your old clay jar. And this old clay jar still has that sinful disposition in it. That's one of the reasons Paul said he looked forward to dying and being with Christ. When we die, no more sinful nature. This is a good thing. But only Christians have this dilemma. If you don't have a new creation life, you don't have this friction Paul describes in Galatians 5. The flesh and the spirit warring against each other. The conflict is a good sign. That means you're in the game. You're in the race. This is a good thing. Paul goes on in Romans to chapter 8 when he says, Guys, the solution is this. You did die with Christ, and now you overcome sin by yielding yourself, by trusting By walking with the Holy Spirit. Our new creation life, it's not a powerful creature. We don't call the wrath of God down from heaven. It's sort of like we're kids spiritually inside that new life. We don't have power or work energy, but the Holy Spirit does. And so the new life, the new creation life, Paul says in Romans 8, it's to walk with the Spirit. We say, Lord, we're walking with you humbly, hand in hand. We know what we're called to. We know we're inadequate for the call. Holy Spirit, we trust you to be in us what we should be, to help us in those areas where we've got temptations and sin. That's the solution. Romans 13, 14, Paul says it this way, uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like a jacket. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. 
This is a conscious effort. And Paul also talks about this has to do with the renewal of our minds. If we're not renewing our mind, we've just got the old data that controls our thoughts. And we've got a sinful nature, and it's basically always at work. So if we're not renewing our mind and being reminded of what's true of us now in Christ and what our call is, it's no wonder that we live down instead of up. We have to walk with a renewed mind. Now, I've talked to very few Christians who would tell you they feel like they're living a victorious life. And so maybe any one of us, if we were talking with someone else, we'd say, man, my, my Christian life is just such a struggle. I never feel like I really arrive. I feel like I'm always struggling with those sins. And one of the things that can happen along this line is uh, living the victorious Christian life becomes about me, 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 and my struggles. And so I may not have time for you and your struggles. And you know, this is the thing. If I'm struggling to live that new creation life, I'll bet you are too. And you know one of the greatest blessings you can do for your brothers and sisters in Christ is to give them the benefit of the doubt in the sense of treating them like a new creation also. That is that we want grace from other people and we want other people to affirm who we are now in Christ to help us up instead of keeping us down. But you know, it's really easy to do the flip side of that to others. Somebody sinned again. That's all they are. That's all they'll ever be. Somebody blew it again. My child, my spouse, my friend, the person next to me at church on Sunday morning. That's all they are. That's all they'll ever be. We think down about them, we talk down about them, and we don't pray for them. Wouldn't it be great if we treated them in the same way we would like to be treated? We are new creations. What a blessing for somebody else to affirm you that you are not what you were, that your past is not your future. That just like Chuck Colson, even if there's some question from others about the validity of your conversion, to speak up and to say, no, I understand you're You've trusted Christ and you are a new creation. And just like me, you're struggling with that and that's okay. I'll pray for you. I'll affirm you. Many of you in here are old enough. If you've grown up in a family with siblings, there is what I consider a really unhealthy dynamic. And it goes like this. You grow up in your infancy, up into adulthood in a family. And for better or worse, the dynamics in your relationships with your siblings, it's set for life. The stories, they're always the same stories about what you did wrong 30 years ago. And the dynamics, the oldest brother is always the oldest brother. Telling, you know, the ones down the pecking order how things are. Guys, this is not spiritual reality at all. And one of the things I try and do just in the family I grew up with, it's to let other people be the people they've become, not the people they were. I want to bless them by saying, I see who you are now and I want to interact with you as you are now and as I am now, not as siblings from 40 years ago. You know, as you go to graduations and weddings in May and June, you see your nieces or nephews or you see the little children of your friends or your extended family and if you haven't seen them for a week, a month or a year, 
isn't it always startling to say how much you've grown? You know, on one hand, they're like, yeah. You know, what else could I do? Of course I've grown. You know, but for us, if there's a bit of separation in time there and they're young, just that brief separation lets you see physically on the outside, man, they've grown. But you know, most of us, we wouldn't be here on Sunday morning if we weren't interested in growing spiritually. That's a lot harder to see. But what a blessing towards other new creation people like us to affirm their new creation status and to believe the best about them and to encourage them. You are someone different than you were, even if you've blown it again, just like I have. You are something different than you were before, even though you've blown it again the way I have. What a blessing. We want to be affirmed because we struggle. Guys, this is every one of us. We struggle. We say, God, you say we're new creations, but it sure looks like the old to me. And God says, well, I've got a solution for that, but it's, it's turmoil. And this will be turmoil for us. We have this old, sinful, fallen nature in this body. As long as we're in the body, we've got that conflict. So we're struggling to to live up to more and more that new creation status, but it is there. And our struggle with the sinful nature, that's a reminder that we have a new creation nature, or there'd be no struggle. So for ourselves, that's important, but also for others, that's important. To bless them by saying, I'm not holding against you the thing, the way you blew it last week, last month, and last year. You're a new creation too. And I will pray for you, and I'll pray for that transformation. And not sticking somebody in a box and saying, what you were is what you shall be. That is a curse. It's a curse in our natural families. It's a curse in the family of God. None of us are static. We're all growing. But as Christians, that's on the inside. And guys, that can be hard to see. So to give each other the benefit of the doubt, to treat each other as fellow new creations, this is a great reminder and a great call. We're new creations as those who've trusted in Christ, but our brothers and sisters in Christ are also not mere mortals. They're heirs to eternity and heirs with Christ just like we are. So we're new creations and so are they. Uh, You know, Paul knew something about this status. Paul went from a fire-breathing dragon, persecuting Christians, tracking them down, locking them up, seizing their possessions, to this guy who says, you know, I suffer all things for the loss of Christ, and I count them as rubbish, because I know Christ now. And I'll do anything I can to bless Christ and to bless his family in the church. And I'm here to remind them there's an upward call. There's new creation status, and that's a good thing. And Paul says, if God can do that in my life, He can do it in yours too. He can do it in yours too. All of us know we're not what we should be. We're not what we could be. We're not what we will be. But if we're Christians, we can say, thank God we are not what we were. Some of Jesus' last words in Revelation 21.5, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Right, for these words are faithful and true. You and I as believers in Christ today, you are already in seed form, part of that new creation. You're already there. It's not full-blown, for sure. It's hard to see sometimes in ourselves and in others, for sure. 
But we already have new creation status. Our future is in the new creation Jesus Christ is preparing today. It's not the old. Our past does not dictate our future. Chuck Colson, amid all the sneers and the questions and the wondering about, is this a conversion of convenience? You know, man, you look at his life over time. There's an upward call. There's a new creation life that we've witnessed over time. Whatever the outside looked like, we've seen the heart. We've seen it in action. Lord, help us to really extend grace to each other. Lord, the truth is we're all much more in Romans 7 than we uh, like to admit to ourselves or others. God, lead us in that Romans 8 kind of life, that 2 Corinthians 5 kind of new creation status. Lord, help us to lift our eyes up to you. Help us to believe the truth you've said of us. Help us to believe the truth of others, that like us, they are your children, your heirs, those possessions that you love and cherish. And Lord, help us to bless each other as we struggle to display on the outside more and more of that new creation status true of us on the inside in these cracked clay jars. In Jesus' name, amen.